From Green Biz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here at Green Biz Headquarters at 350 Franco Gawa Plaza in downtown Oakland, California. On this week's edition, the 2018 Green Biz 30 Under 30, how Yertle is accelerating the circular economy, how to make sure your sustainability report is actually read, and where are they now? A report on previous 30 Under 30s. We're updating our status this week on 350. It's June 8th, 2018. Welcome to Green Biz 350. Joining me, as always, across the USA is Editorial Director Heather Clancy. Hello, Heather. Greetings, Joel. Looking forward to next week when you're not across the USA. In fact, you and I will be halfway across the Pacific Ocean in Honolulu for Verge Hawaii. That'll be cool, as always. Well, maybe not cool, but hot. But <laughs> Yeah, it'll be hot and cool all at the same time. Yes, I'm that, that will be tremendous. Yes. Either way, I'm warming up to the idea. <laughs> oh, yes. So much going on. I mean, uh, that's coming up next week, and we've been working hard on our respective panels and all the last-minute details of these things include, and um, want to make sure that everybody knows that uh, even though you probably can't make it to uh, the Aloha State, um, you can still tune in live or on demand with the uh, Verge Virtual live stream. So we'll be uh, including that in the uh, page for this week's podcast, or you can just go to greenbiz.com and you'll find the link probably on the homepage. But this week, 30 under 30. Yes, 30 under 30. It's This is a tremendously inspirational project for me. I, I love interviewing these um, people that are full of energy, great ideas. We had such a, a good problem with this list. We had so many applicants that it was really hard to pick <laughs> who was in this cohort. cohort. Um, and I think we came up with a, a wonderful, um, inspiring group of, of young leaders. And um, a shout out to Elsa Wenzel for taming the beast, if you will. It's very hard to, to make sure that this sort of project is consistent and um, it reads really well and thanks also for for pulling that together um, but yeah tremendously inspiring um, Joel did you I, I know you had a chance to read it you actually didn't have a chance to um, interview any of these folks this year which I'm sure actually probably was a disappointment to you it was uh, you know I was on my uh, Moroccan vacation uh, during the time that you and and Cassandra and Holly and Ocelia Wing and and Elsa and others were, were working on these and I didn't get to participate this year, and, and uh, yeah, I was a little disappointed in that. But I, I have to say, I mean, it came out great, and uh, it's a lot of hard work to, to pull this together because, you know, no secret, we're trying to model the diversity in the world of, uh, and literally in the world, so we're trying to cast a global net and not just USA or North America. And thanks to our colleagues at the World Business Council for Sustainable Development in doing the outreach to help us reach some of their chapters. So we had 30 under 30s from four continents this year. Um, but also just to pick diversity, not just gender and, and, and race, but, but also just the kinds of companies, big companies, small companies, some in government and NGOs and ac even academia, different types of jobs. Uh, the only thing they have in common is they're 
all under 30. And, <laughs> and that's really terrific because it really is, is, as I said in the newsletter on Monday, uh, this is probably the most inspiring and energizing thing that we publish uh, every year and in, in, just in terms of feeling that there's this great generation uh, and, and of course not that's behind you and me and of course it's not just the 30 um, it's the hundreds that that applied and, and I'm sure hundreds more who didn't uh, so it's it, it's really cool and over the course of this podcast we're going to play uh, excerpts from some of the interviews that you all did with them uh, we'll, we'll we'll do uh, I think six uh, of the 30 under 30s just to get a flavor for some of what they're doing and thinking and, and a little bit about who they are so let's uh, before we get into that let's Jump into the Week in Review. I'll start us out, Joel, with a piece that I did this week on the Hawaii energy transition. Um, as we've reported extensively, the state is the it remains the only state, actually, to, to have a 100% renewables goal by 2045. And... What I did was take a look at sort of the policy, um, technology, collaborative sort of frameworks that need to come into place for this actually to happen. My colleague Katie Fahrenbacher did a, a piece uh, about a month ago on you know where we stand today. So how how where is Hawaii right now as far as renewables? And it's about a quarter. They've managed to move from about nine percent, I think, it was twenty sixteen up to a quarter. But what is it going to take to um, to get to that 100% goal, and actually, even more um, importantly, how are they going to pull off this transportation goal that they have? Right? They're they're talking about um, making all ground transportation um, clean. That they don't really say what clean is in, in that context. But um, so so I took a talked to quite a few of the players in uh, Hawaii, um, policymakers, um, technologists, and so on. And you know, I think right now they agree that. The things are coming into, uh, you know, falling into place. There's a new, um, there is a carbon neutrality pledge, and we're going to be discussing what that means during Virtual Hawaii next week. I have a panel that, that I'm going to be running. Um, that could be setting the stage for a carbon tax, a carbon standard in the state, um, where there is actually some financial incentives around controlling things. Um, but you know, there's a good, lots of things to be done. Like I said, I think the inspiration is. Um, is there and it's going to take a lot of collaborative collaborative um, activity though to, to pull it off. And I like the fact that uh, in the bill that created that uh, carbon neutrality pledge that was uh, enacted recently is that in the very first sentence the, the they talk about the fact that this Hawaii could suffer 19 billion dollars in damage from projected sea level rise. Uh, and I'm not sure if that's uh, over what period of time, but that's you know that's significant for a state the size of any state, but the state the size of Hawaii. But they get right into understanding that this is an existential threat to tourism, not to mention to uh, a lot of the the residents of, of, of all of the islands there. And so this is really something that is, is threatening uh, as it is uh, th throughout the Pacific and the South Pacific. But I, but I, I love the fact that they're really uh, sort of hitting that nail on the head that this is really important from a financial solvency and, and business continuity perspective. Yeah. And the second piece of that is that there is a specific um, piece of legislation that directs the, um, 
the lawmakers there to put into place some sort of carbon offset um, marketplace. And that the shape of that remains to be seen, as does the shape of the policies that are necessary to, to support that transportation goal, right? So it's worth noting that that transportation commitment is, is being led by the mayors um, across the islands. And there isn't actually a statewide policy yet. And the way that the incentives are, are kind of... Um, are laid out across the islands. It, right now, it's, it's the finances um, necessary to support those investments. That's a big hole, right? There's no structure in place to really incent people right now. So there's a lot of um, private sector and public sector meetings of the minds going on, if you will. You know, if, with everyone from rental car fleets, right? If you if you if you look at the rental car operators, you know, could they be encouraged to invest more in EVs? Um, because a lot of those cars actually wind up in the hands of private citizens, right? That's as they come off of, of a fleet. So lots and lots of um, very tactical work to be done and, and exciting. And um, we'll obviously be talking a lot about this and, and more next week in Hawaii. And politics come into play, too. Uh, uh, Governor David Ige, who uh, signed that original uh, 100% renewables by 2045 legislation is up for election. It's unclear exactly wh- how that's going to unfold. He'll be there next week at our event, as he has for the past two Verge Hawaii's. And, uh, you know, politics, the leadership, you, as you were saying, the uh, uh, this is really being done at the at the island level, at the mayors of, of the islands. And that really plays into, you know, the, the shifting politics of the day. And can they continue the... Uh, focus on this. Uh, Hawaii is a pretty reliably democratic state electorate. And so um, there's a good chance of that. But leadership matters. One of the things I'm excited about next week is I've got three or four main stage interviews I'll be doing all on the theme of resilience. Resilience in infrastructure, resilience uh, in you know uh, every aspect from heat uh, to tsunamis and floods and earthquakes and God knows volcanoes. That's going to be a really interesting piece. We're going to have some people who've worked on Puerto Rico and on Superstorm Sandy talking about the lessons they've learned, and it's it. Those are really important lessons for for Hawaii and 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 others. Um, but let me ask you uh, before we move off this: Did this piece leave you optimistic about the path that Hawaii's on? <laughs> um, so this piece left me. Um realistic, I will say, that that I do feel like the resolve is there. I, fe- I feel like the people that are involved in this conversation are determined and they are acting. They're, they're out there. They're already working on these things. I feel also that there's a great innovation um, community, right? You know, our friends at Elemental Accelerator are driving a lot of the technology um, innovation that needs to happen to, to help. Yeah, I feel a little bit daunted though. Like, and that's that's the realistic part of this. Um, you know, nine percent to twenty five percent—that's a pretty good leap. I, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I feel like if anyone's going to do it, they are, and and they have a definitely have a, an economic and um, existential incentive to do so. Um, why not? It, t- it takes a generation. I mean, that gives us a generation to do this, and that's kind of what we need. So, yeah. Let's do this. Let's do this. Well, let's let, let's move over to a different island, the one I mentioned a minute ago, Puerto Rico, because uh, Cassandra Sweet had a related piece about 
resilience on an island uh, that's been beset by by challenges. Uh, and this is about Puerto Rico setting the stage for microgrids, and f which is a, about Puerto Rico Energy Commission uh, not long ago finally adopting a microgrid regulation to help drive the development of those technologies, which uh, I think everybody who's not a fossil fuel plant operator agrees is what needs to happen, uh, not just in Puerto Rico, but but elsewhere, uh, where you can uh, have these uh, electrical islands, if you will, small grids that can uh, operate independently or in concert with the, uh, the central grid and to provide backup power when the grid goes down or gets switched appropriately to island mode, but still part of the grid uh, the rest of the time. And I think you know, we're going to be talking about this, and uh, Peter Asmus, uh, a research director at Navigant Research, who's uh, uh, really one of the authorities on microgrids, will be in Hawaii next week talking uh, about this. Um, we, we've this is the future, and uh, the real question is, you know, how do you get the wherewithal, political leadership, to take this technology, which is pretty mature at this point? It's just in the last few years has finally become mature enough to be cost competitive and uh, with with other kinds of power systems and really scale it and particularly in places that are prone to to uh, power loss like Puerto Rico. Yeah, actually, and we haven't had a chance to discuss this, you and I, but um, uh, one of my sessions actually will be dealing with the same issue. Um, and it's the, the one coming out of Asia that um, uh, I'll be speaking with some representatives from Australia and from Korea and in Australia this microgrid thing is really playing out. They're all over the place. Um, I was astonished to learn how, just how many are popping up. Um, and they're also pioneering a lot of the virtual power plant technologies, right? So microgrids are great and islanding and isolating them from each other is going to, to definitely be a resilience play, but also um, helping them act in concert, right? And adding them together and orchestrating them um, when necessary, I think will be an important thing for us to watch. And so we'll be hearing from Australia about that as well. So I'm excited for that session and definitely a topic that you'll see us covering a whole lot more editorially um, in the months to come. So finally, for a week in review, uh, let's go back to 30 Under 30s. And we're about to play some excerpts from uh, the first three of our uh, uh, 30 Under 30 class of 2018. We'll play three more later on in this uh podcast. But uh, one of the things we do, I think it's important and uh, it makes me very happy, is that we don't just name these uh, every year and then move on. We keep in touch uh, with our 30 under 30s. We've created a LinkedIn group, a private LinkedIn group for them to communicate with one another. They definitely want to it's a network and not just uh, you know the class of 16 and 17, but actually across those classes. So we now have 90 under 30. Some of them have or above 30, but you get the point, that we've named over the last three years, and they want to be part of a community. So we do that. We uh, bring them to our conferences, either for free or a deep discount, because we want them in the room. We ask them to write for us, and as we had in last week's show, uh, Jeremy Bond from Interface uh, wrote a great piece, and we, we talked with him about uh, that piece and, and what it means to be a 30 under 30, as he was uh, uh, a year or two ago. And so uh, I love this. Uh, where are they now? We, every Elsa Wenzel checked in with uh, uh, our past 60, 30 under 30s. And we got about a couple dozen of them uh, or so, you know, checking in and talking about what they're doing. A lot of them have changed jobs. A lot of them have uh, leveraged their uh, 
notoriety as a 30 under 30 to be able to do things in their company or to in a, in a new job. And so uh, check it out. It's, it's, it's really cool. So a number of them have, have left the corporate arena and have gone into entrepreneur uh, kinds of initiatives. And uh, it's just really fun to see what they do and where they go. So I encourage you to check out that piece. But let's run the first three of these uh, 30 under 30s that we're going to share on this podcast. Uh, they'll introduce themselves and you'll learn a little bit about them. I'm Healy Cashteller. I work at Proterra and I'm the manager of automation and power systems. I've been working on developing Proterra's chargers and figuring out how we can make charging as easy as plugging in your phone when it comes to a bus. Um, there's historically been a lot of issues in the industry with charging such large scale batteries um, efficiently and effectively and without any hassle. And my next 12 months is dedicated to making that easy for our customers. And if we can master that, that impacts the transit industry, it impacts uh, anybody who uses an electric car and it impacts uh, the public utility. And I think so touching those three areas is a really important way to garner change across more than one industry. My name is Joey Gale, and I work for RFNH, an engineering consulting firm as an environmental specialist. So when you have a really big aircraft landing at the airport, it has a difficult time maneuvering into the gate. And so oftentimes there'll be a little tug come out, he'll attach to the front of the plane, and then he'll tow it into the gate. I teamed up with a planner and architect at San Francisco International Airport, and then a noise modeler scientist with another consulting firm, HMMH. And we created the proposal showing the operational and regulatory roadmap to implementation for remote-controlled tug operations or self-driving tug logistics at airports. Um, and so our project was partnered up with uh, TaxiBot and NASA. And TaxiBot is this Israeli company who's created this robotic tug. So basically the tug goes out, attaches to the front of the aircraft, and then the pilot's able to basically operate that tug himself, kind of taking out the middleman who's controlling the tug itself. And so he's able, the pilot's able to control and go into the gate. We went down to the NASA Ames Research Center, and they're working on this uh, self-driving autonomous technology. Basically, the same thing, except the pilot would give control over to the autonomous tug, which is a little bit tougher to uh, convince pilots of and the aviation industry as a whole. But TaxiBot is partnered, I think, right now with Lufthansa, and they've started doing some trial runs uh, with their robotic tugs uh, in Germany. Ground surface equipment as a whole at airports typically generate the most greenhouse gas emissions at airports. And so I think down the road at San Francisco International Airport, they're potentially going to be looking to do that as well, looking at reductions in uh, overall air pollutants, uh, savings in, uh, in fuel from a monetary perspective, as well as savings and in, in fuel itself, you know, so San Francisco right now uses diesel to power their tugs. Uh, so the transition would incorporate all electric 
uh, tugs onto the airfield, and there would be various charging stations um, that they would use. And so my involvement in the project was more looking at kind of the regulatory roadmap and environmental impact consequences uh, or savings uh, benefits associated with the project. Hi, I am Kayla Fenton, and I am a Senior Program Manager for Sustainability at Amazon.com. When I think about what I want me and our team to accomplish this next year, it's really about Amazon customers beginning to notice the packaging changes that we're making. So a lot of our work in the past has been around kind of lightweighting and things that, you know, maybe as a customer, you wouldn't necessarily notice that you just received a package that's actually more efficient than it was in the past. And so we've done a lot of the um, low-hanging fruit and some of the more, you know, uh, to use a, a, an energy comparison, you know, the energy efficiency type work where you don't necessarily see the change, but it's happening in the background. And so I think we have a unique opportunity now to sort of move on to what is the sort of next level of um, changes from a, a packaging standpoint that we can drive to our customers in a way that they can see in a more real way and sort of make the connection to packaging. Packaging is starting to change in a, in a, um, in a more innovative way, and Amazon's at the forefront of that. Joel, you had a terrific piece this week on Yertle, which I have always been fascinated by. Um, the, the, this, this organization, um, you know, kind of coming out of the sharing economy world, if you will, um, that was originally established six years ago to be kind of a mashup of eBay and Facebook, the, the idea that you could swap or exchange or, um, you know, get rid of stuff in your attic, your ski boots and ex exercise equipment or the baby clothes you don't need anymore. Um, you know, we had some great early coverage of Yertle and you have a really terrific um, update on what they're doing now. So I'd love to turn it over to you. You know, what has Yertle grown up? Yeah. Oh, well, thank you. You're very kind. But uh, Yertle, yes, yeah, fascinating company. And I knew the two co-founders, Adam Murbach uh, and, and Andy Rubin from their previous lives. Andy was the first sustainability director of Walmart uh, in the mid 2000s. And, uh, and Adam uh, came out of the Sierra Club and started a marketing communications company that, that got bought by Saatchi and Saatchi. And he's, he's actually moved on to do some other entrepreneurial and and activist kinds of things, and and uh, Andy is is running the show. But the basic story is this: that when they started out in 2012, it was sort of a, it was a it was a consumer facing thing. It was an ability for you to exchange stuff with friends or sell it if you want. But you know all the stuff that we have in our attics, basements, and closets. Um, but using the trust of friends and as opposed to strangers on Craigslist or eBay and all of that. And it worked kind of, sort of, uh, but never quite got the traction that it, you know, perhaps arguably deserved. But along the way, they realized that there was a bigger opportunity here. And that's an opportunity to service brands that are beginning to now step up into what uh, Yertle calls re-commerce, R-E-commerce, re-commerce, which is basically selling used goods from their brands, um, things that have come back from their customers and have been uh, repaired, refurbished, fixed up in some way, and, and, and sell the same good a second or maybe third time. Uh, with so I'm sorry, Joel, are these returns or are these like actual things like I've owned this shirt for a year and I'm giving it back? Like, is it both? You know, your, your kids outgrow stuff or you it's been sitting there, you thought you were going to use the 
ski jacket and it turns out you don't like cold weather it's been mildly used and maybe it's it's got a tear maybe it, it, it shows it, it's seen a little bit of, of of the world but it then gets uh, refurbished and and sold but the point is is that you know this has been done for a long time selling used goods but brands have not sold their own goods so for the obvious reason that if we if we do that we're cannibalizing our our audience our own sales uh, why would somebody buy the new one if they can buy the used one at, at only 40% of the of the price thereabouts? And and what realizing and what Yertle is proving is that that's actually not the case. That's a little bit short-sighted that this brings in new consumers. And you take something, a brand like Patagonia or REI um, or Eileen Fisher, the three companies that Yertle is working with now, creating this white label service where they do all the back office and, and logistics stuff for these brands, but they do it under the brand's name, not Yertle's. Nobody sees Yertle's name. That you're bringing in new customers because you've got people, you know, Patagonia is terrific stuff, but it's pretty expensive for a lot of people and particularly young people who, uh, you know, deserve to have this, the quality and uh, performance that the, that Patagonia products provide. But now they can, you know, they could buy it through deep discounters or uh, secondhand stores, but now they can buy it directly from Patagonia. They can, you know, get, if, and, and the person who returned it in the first place gets a store credit for them to go buy something else. This thing gets, again, refurbished, cleaned, repaired, you know, like new or almost uh, sold at a very deep discount with the warranty, the ironclad guarantee that, that Patagonia likes to talk about. So, um, you know, and, and there's, other, there's, there's other firms doing these kinds of things, a lot of them for women's fashion, the real real and rent the runway and thread up and, and others. Um, but this is, uh, I just think, a really interesting model to show how a company can actually sell the same product more than once. Uh, and if you t think about it from a sustainability perspective, that's not that terrible. So uh, I, I spent some time at the Yertle Warehouse, which is over not too far from here, over uh, near San Francisco International Airport, and uh, spent some time with Andy Rubin and getting the tour and sitting down with him. And I asked him to tell me about sort of whether this inflection point is in the market right now for uh, e-commerce, for buying used uh, at a more mainstream level. And what's the generational change that's taking place here with millennials? Here's what he had to say. Millennials, uh, they tend to be more mobile, um, far more mobile. In fact, mostly mobile as opposed to desktop. Uh, young uh, men and women, depending on the brand. Uh, one, of the, one of the data points we have is REI actually markets to their existing membership base. And even when they market to their existing membership base, we still see a delta of 20 or more years in terms of the average, the average age of a customer buying used will be 20 years younger than the mainline customer. We see that across the board. So that bodes well in terms of uh, the, the next generation and the, even the generation after that, the waves of, of, of demographic groups coming through. Um, this, does it feel like this is not just a fad, but a, but a permanent inflection, or at least a long-term inflection in the marketplace in terms of ability or willingness to buy used? Yeah, it, it, it's, it strikes me, what we've observed is an entirely new way to think about these items themselves. So instead of, it's, it's, um, it's akin to car ownership, it's akin to having your music in the cloud, 
it's a freedom, right? It's a different way to operate. I think when, if, if you look at Rent the Runway and you look at the idea of having the world's largest closet, you start to think about access to the brands and the items you want when you want them. Uh, for me, I've got two kids and my oldest um, has a, neither kid ever got to wear Patagonia, right? Because they grew out in a year and I, I, I wasn't willing to make that kind of investment for one year. Love the brand. And so now that I can buy a used Patagonia for my oldest son for you know, half of what it would have been new, when I'm done, I just take it right back to the store, get a gift card that I use on the next, the next used item. It's almost a leasing program with no paperwork, mm. right? So I now have access to a Patagonia jacket you know, for each of my kids that is at less money per year than buying a new one at Costco. So if I bring something back to Patagonia and get a gift card, can I use that gift card at Warnware? Absolutely. So every year, if you have a kid that, that grows every year, you just you take that jacket back, you get a gift card, you buy the next size. And when you look at the actual out-of-pocket spend, that's why I'm saying it's a whole new behavior. right? These are, these are modes of operating that us as customers, we didn't have access to before. And if we did, it was a ton of work. Right? You'd have to meet someone on Craigslist in a nondescript coffee shop. You'd have to email back and forth with somebody on eBay trying to figure out the shipping and when it would arrive and could you return it. This is, um, it's, it's also akin to, we've seen it with automotive, right? Years ago, you wouldn't have been able to go to a Lexus dealership and get a certified pre-owned car. And now you can because, because Toyota and Lexus have figured out that by doing that, they get access to an entire new group of customers, right, who would have maybe stayed in Toyota and not moved to Lexus. And by the way, when you bought a new Lexus, you bring it back three years later, you're standing on their car lot. So they've got an ability to attract new customers and to, to garner greater loyalty from their existing customers. Yeah. So, Joel, one of the things I am wondering about, like I'm not seeing much about, quote, sustainability in this. I mean... Is that part of the brand pop- proposition for the pa- Patagonia folks and in in Eileen Fisher and, and REI? Or what, what is it, what's in it for them? What's in it for the brand? Well, this, in it for the brand is the ability to, to reach a, a broader audience than they're already reaching. But I was f- fascinated at the fact that, that even though this is uh, very much uh, uh, sustainability is very much at the heart of what Yertle is about and their mission, that does not show up in the websites uh, as it, facing consumers from REI, Patagonia, and Eileen Fisher. Uh, they talk about uh, value. They talk about something that's you know been previously loved. Um, they don't talk about sustainability, um, and that's exactly how Andy Rubin would like it. And I asked him about that, and here's what he had to say. I actually appreciate that it's not coming up in the business model conversation, it is at the core of our mission, right? So our mission is based on keeping items, keeping well-made items in use longer. That, that the more you can use an item, that's where we really get the improvement in reducing a footprint. And so the only way that what I just said, that, that getting more use out of a product is going to scale, is if a brand can see the benefit beyond there, right? If a brand can really, if a brand can sit in the boardroom and say, Hey, look at, look at our ability to attract a younger new customer segment. Hey, look at our ability to keep the engagement of our existing customers in an increasingly competitive landscape. Oh, and oh, by the way, this is the biggest thing that we could do in terms of footprint, sustainability, um, the innovativeness of the brand, right? So I love the fact that this can, while it's the biggest thing I know of for sustainability, I love the fact it doesn't have to lead the proposition. 
So my name is Dana Hall. I'm co-founder of Farm Friends, which is an online marketplace connecting farmers to agriculture drone pilots. I did two major research projects. One is on the demographic change in China. The second is、uh, urbanization in China.、Uh, after I understood like how those、um, trends were like happening so rapidly in China, I I, I was so convinced that replacing manual workers with uh, with uh, drone operators、um, in rural China is something that is definitely going to happen because we are running out of farmers. Basically, there are fewer and fewer people who stay in rural China. Most of them are migrating from rural China to、uh, the cities.、Uh, second,、uh, those people who stay in rural China are aging. As they get old, it's impossible for them to continue doing it manually. The efficiency is so low.、Uh, the spraying process is so toxic.、Uh, there's just no way for them to continue doing that. I think compared to city consumers,、uh, farmers are extremely information hungry、uh, because a lot, like fewer companies, approach farmers. Right? Most most companies focus on like consumers in the cities,、uh, so I would say like consumers in the cities are pretty like spoiled.、Uh, while farmers, they they just they truly value、uh, opportunities to learn more about new things. Hi, I'm Kumar Jensen. I'm the Sustainability Coordinator for the City of Evanston and an Advisory Council member with Environmentalists of Color. I would say Mayor Haggerty has signed more commitments and letters and pledges in in his first year in office、um, than probably most of the other、um, Evanston mayors combined. So we are we are a signatory of the Mayors for 100% Clean Energy, the Global Covenant of Mayors,、uh, the We Are Still In pledge. Uh, we are part of Climate Mayors. We've signed on to the Chicago Climate Charter. We're a four-star community, as rated by the Star Communities、um, Organization. There are many、um, different sort of pledges that we've we've participated in. I think there. Are, I mean, there are a lot of things that that、um, excite me about coming into work. I'm I'm very fascinated with power production and, and power markets, and so anytime I get to work on that type of thing,、um, and then be able to help explain that to other people. Um, in ways that helps them be able to make better decisions,、um, that is always very、um, exciting.、Uh, and I also I don't get to do it a ton, but I really really enjoy like tabling at community events. The kids that come up, and even the parents that may have no idea what you're talking about, but you've got a game on display, or you've got like a a wheel of fortune wheel, or、uh, you've got a stack of light bulbs, or whatever it is, they come over sort of curious and skeptical.、Um, and I think those conversations are, are oftentimes where I learn the most about、um, sort of where broadly the community is in the conversations. An example of something that I'd really like to see happen here in Evanston is、um, high-efficiency buildings. The benefits to that can be not only just low low energy intensity, but improved indoor air quality, improved comfort. If you can have it be all electric, you can reduce、uh, also improve indoor air quality, but also reduce fire risk. And in thinking about how to create that type of building in a way that we're prioritizing affordable housing or、um, social service organizations or entities that pay a lot of money
uh, a lot of portion of their income, disposal income, to utility costs and things like that. And so there's been some some little examples of of that being effective. So there are some affordable housing developments that are passive standard that are very interesting. Um, but I think we're seeing the premium, the cost premium being very closely related to contractor experience. And so I'm very interested in figuring out ways to to sell those concepts or bring those concepts to Evanston in ways that our affordable housing advocates, uh, fire and emergency services advocates, our um, our health advocates, and our sustainability and climate folks all see benefit to uh, a similar type of approach um, to one thing, which would be you know sort of building and building codes. Uh, and it's not something that would happen overnight, but I think the municipalities or the communities that are that are looking at this and and, and approaching it are 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 showing some good good examples for us to look at. My name is uh, Willemijn Brouwer, and I'm the lead internal engagement and learning at the DSM Sustainability Department. In itself, this job is really. I mean, I have to help others to do their job, huh? So I'm I'm. My role is really focused on listening um, to the needs, but also the ambitions of my colleagues in the different disciplines and see how I, how I can support them um, with uh, messaging, with tools, with, with conferences, um, but also by connecting my network uh, with them. It's really important to, to truly listen and also be present when you talk with people to understand their their agenda, their objectives, but also to provoke them a little bit uh, and, and, and connect them to new agendas they might not have, uh, not have thought about. That's really my role. You want to be in the middle in, in having a bit of new ideas, but also uh, yeah, use the same language. You know, in the end, it's really about making connection with people uh, on their professional agenda, but certainly also personal. Um, of course, I, I don't know all the 23,000 employees of DSM, but I do know that the people with whom I work um, I really want to build a relationship and, and want to be there also as their ally. Um, and I think when you show you want to be an ally instead of a colleague who just wants to force her agenda on the other one's plate, it's possible to also connect on topics you might disagree on at first. It's sustainability report season again, when hundreds of companies release data about how and how much they've improved their environmental and sustainability performance. And like every year, there'll be a collective sigh of relief by hundreds of sustainability professionals who toil much of the year to put these reports together. And some will be asking the question, is it all worth it? To answer that question, we've turned to Christina Forst. Senior Director of Communications at Framework, an analytics and advisory firm specializing in sustainable business practices. Hey, Christina. Hi, Joel. So you recently did an infographic, pretty interesting, about sustainability reporting. And I'm just wondering, just overall, how well do you think companies today leverage their sustainability reports? I think in general, uh, there's a lot of great communication and work being done to leverage the report, but I think there's also an opportunity to continue to do more, especially when there's uh, the potential for 
interactive elements, really engaging audiences and, and kind of using that information in a dynamic way. So, so that was one of the reasons we put the information together and just put some examples together to help companies think about how to really get the most out of the information that they are working so hard throughout the year to, to put together and the data that they're collecting. So, um, yeah, really, it's about getting a bigger return uh, for your sustainability report. Well, I want to get to some of the creative ways companies are doing that. But first of all, who are the audiences? I, when I talk to companies about their reports, it seems that some of them are writing primarily for employees, some for customers, some for communities. Uh, it's all over the map. But how, how do, do you think companies even know who their prime audiences are for these? I think that when companies are putting together reports based on um, stakeholder concerns and priorities and really trying to target those, that gives a pretty good indication about who some of those key audiences should be. Um, and, and that's really um, the most important thing to you know, think about who those stakeholders are and what audiences they may represent. Well, let's get into some of the, the ways that you suggest companies can leverage their reports. Um, so I've, I would imagine social media is right up there on the list, right? Absolutely. Yeah, we uh, feel that the opportunity to take the report beyond a static piece of communication is very important to really try to begin those year-round conversations or calls to action to keep that dialogue going. So social media is one of the best ways to do that. Um, especially if the report is being um, uh, planned for uh, to include dynamic or visually engaging elements that can easily be pushed through those channels. Um, so, you know, it's important to think about that as a strategy before the completion of the report to kind of plan for those elements in the report as you're going. Um, and, you know, one example we included was uh, Coca-Cola, who in their 2017 report launched last summer, actually included social media functionality right into the body of their report um, and made it easy for readers to tweet an interesting statistic or, um, or graphic. Um, and so that was weaved right into the report. And, um, you know, made it very functional and also helped audiences and readers to help Coca-Cola tell that story for them. And I'm sure it's not simply a matter of saying, uh, tweeting once and saying, hey, check out our new report, that it's a matter of pulling things out of the report that's interesting. And I think that's hard because you're so close to the data, you're so close to the company. How do you even know what's interesting? Exactly. Yeah, I think it's really about trying to find those pieces of information that may be relevant uh, throughout the year. Um, so if there's something related to International Women's Day or um, a particular um, you know, event or, or, or uh, something happening in the news, you know, it's, it's great to be able to use the report as a resource. Uh, throughout the year uh, for multiple functions. One of the tips you give is around pitching the media, and and you you cite GreenBiz along with several other sustainability publications as as uh, you know media outlets that might be of interest. We get hundreds and hundreds of pitches a, a year saying, hey, check out our new sustainability report. To us, that's not news, and it, we almost almost never ever write about these the fact that a report was published today because that's just 
business as usual. How do you see companies breaking through that to organizations like mine who just sort of look at these askance? Right. I mean, I, I think you, you, you make a good point there. And, and one of the things we would recommend is to try to find the hook, so to speak, for what might be interesting, different, you know, more revolutionary to garner the interest of different media outlets who are seeing lots of different stories all the time. So it's really trying to set your information apart and to think about how to communicate that information in a creative, engaging, dynamic way um, that you know hasn't been communicated uh, in that way before. So what might be a hook these days that you think could get attention or, or have you seen any particular companies use that effectively to, to make news? Yeah, I, I think it really depends on the company. We, we included one example uh, in our write-up about Ferrero, um, the Italian confectionery company who, you know, tried to garner interest around um, uh, Valentine's Day. So, you know, the chocolate and, and sharing sweet, so to speak, media hooks. Um, and that was just one interesting way to try to communicate that information in an interesting way. So, yeah, I think it really depends on the company, the the time of year it's being launched, and just other creative ways that companies can use their products, their you know business model um, to to communicate interesting ways. One of the other things companies I think grapple with is just how big of a report, how comprehensive, how much data to put in. There's sort of an old axiom that a short readable report is incredible, but a long credible report isn't readable. How do you think companies can effectively walk that tightrope? It's a it's a great question, and it's it's something that we spend a lot of time thinking about. And one of the ways we recommend approaching it is to separate the interesting stories and perhaps the more um, readable elements of a report and putting that in a very easily accessible format, and then combining that in a separate component or section with the data-specific or performance and metric-related information. So a standards-based report using something like the GRI or SASB can help create the index and the tables that some more technical audiences may be looking for to satisfy those needs, but then combining that with a more engaging, creative, story-like element to the report can help reach audiences that are not interested in the technical details or data. So finally, this is kind of a loaded question because I imagine that framework is in part in the business of helping companies produce their sustainability reports. But is this trip really necessary? In other words, are the days of a once a year now PDF and maybe printed standalone sustainability report even relevant in the age of instant information and continual updates and and things like that? It's It's a good question. And in fact, we are seeing a lot of movement within our own clients to really taking the reporting function more in-house um, and and thinking about communication in multiple ways, not just a static PDF. So I think there is still a strong need to have those disclosures, this disclosures and and those communications, but the format of that is is changing from some of the more traditional uh, PDF formats and and really moving to more uh, dynamic. Uh, or interactive pieces. I think that 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 
trend is is shifting and and a lot of what we're doing more and more is advising clients on how to do that rather than kind of writing it for them. It's a really interesting area and there's a lot more to say about this and I look forward to uh, hearing uh, and seeing the, the latest crop of reports. But for now, Christina Forrest is Senior Director of Communications at Framework. Thanks so much, Christina. Thank you so much, Joel. And that's our 350 podcast for this week. You can go to greenbiz.com slash 350 and you'll find out more about the organization, stories and events we mentioned in this episode. While you're there, check out a link to our other podcast, Center Stage, the best of live interviews from GreenBiz events. You can hit us up by email at 350 at greenbiz.com. We always love to hear from you. GreenBiz 350's director is Stephanie Joyce. Elsa Wenzel is our managing editor. We'll be back next week from the Aloha State with another edition of GreenBiz 350. Until then, from all of us here at GreenBiz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks for listening. <laughs>